The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, the third chapter and the sixteenth verse. The sixteenth verse in the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner men. Let me again read to you this entire section from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner men, that Christ, may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. But we are concerned particularly this morning again with the statement in this 16th verse. Here we saw last Sunday morning the Apostle begins to tell these Ephesians what exactly was the nature of his prayer for them. We've seen the uh, importance he attaches to praying in the right way. You bow your knees when you go to God. Not of necessity physically, but in spirit. We approach him with reverence and with godly fear. Assurance in prayer does not mean glibness. It doesn't mean aggressiveness. It doesn't mean a cocksureness. No, it is characterized still by reverence and godly fear. Boldness is ever accompanied by humility when it is a true spiritual and Christian boldness. And then he tells us what it is he prays for them. And this is the first thing that God might grant unto them according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner men. In other words, you see, it's a spiritual prayer. He doesn't pray anything about their material position or his own. This, we saw, was the grand strategy of the Christian life. The Christian way of dealing with difficulties is not so much to look at them or to do anything about them directly. It is to build up this inner men. That's how the Christian overcomes and is made more than conqueror. He's not so much concerned about the infection as about his resistance. Uh, You remember we showed you the analogy in the physical realm and in the material realm. That is the best way of treating all diseases or of countering diseases and infections. Build up your own resistance. All this modern emphasis upon vitamins and so on is just indicative of that. We need to keep ourselves in a fit state, and as we are fit, we can resist the various forces that are ever threatening to attack us 
and to make us sick. Now, that is the kind of strategy that the apostle here announces, you see, in his prayer with regard to the spiritual conflict in which we find ourselves. It's spiritual and it is specific. And it all turns upon this remarkable doctrine concerning the inner man. And we indicated, you remember, that uh, this uh, inner man is the thing that differentiates the Christian from the non-Christian. The tragedy of the non-Christian is that he hasn't got an inner man. His life is entirely on the surface. And therefore he is entirely influenced by the things that happen round and about him. He doesn't know of some inner citadel of the soul into which he can retire. He can't say with the great apostle in the fourth chapter of Second Corinthians, you remember, though our outward men perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. He knows nothing about that. That is the final tragedy of not being a Christian. His life is entirely superficial. So that when he's taken ill or things go wrong, he has nothing to fall back upon. His world collapses. He is lost. But the Christian has this inner man. And the whole art of living the Christian life is the art of knowing that we have an inner man and the knowledge of how this inner man can be strengthened and made powerful. So the apostle, you see, is praying about that. And uh, therefore we uh, last time indicated something of the nature of this inner man. Uh, here is the uh, mind, if you like, and the heart and the will of the new man in Christ Jesus. He's the regenerate man. And uh, those are the qualities that he manifests. Very well. Now, it's important that we start by realizing all that. If we don't realize that, well, there's no point in going any further. We have to start by knowing what this inner man represents, what it means, and further, we must be certain that we have an inner man. We must be able to talk to ourselves, as it were. We must be able to address this inner man. And that is, I think, one of the best definitions of the Christian. The Christian is a man who can talk to himself. You know, the natural man really can't do that. He's incapable of it because he hasn't got an inner man. But the Christian is a man who's able to talk to himself about himself and about whatever may be happening to him. We must know that we have an inner man. If we haven't an inner man, well, as I say, I don't see that we are Christians at all. Very well, but that isn't enough. The apostle, you see, prays that this inner man may be strengthened with might by the Holy Spirit. And here, again, we come across a very big and a very vital principle in the Christian life. This prayer, you see, is offered for those who are already Christian. He is praying here for people whom he's been describing in the first and the second chapters. And he said some very remarkable things about them there. Here, here's the sort of thing he has said. In whom he also trusted after that he heard the word of truth, the gospel uh, of, of salvation, of your salvation. In whom also after that he believed he were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. 
which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. These people were already believers. They had already had remarkable experiences, as we have seen. Not only that, the apostle has already offered a great prayer for them in that first chapter. He says that uh, he ceases not to give thanks for them, making mention of them in his prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And then he has displayed this knowledge. And we've been dealing with it at the end of chapter 1 and the whole of chapter 2. But still, you see, he's not satisfied. Still, he goes on praying. And he lets them know that though he's in prison and doesn't see them, and is far away from them, he is bowing his knees, he is praying in the presence of God, he is looking into God's face on their behalf, and he is praying that this inner man of, of theirs may be strengthened with might by the Spirit of God. We must never, I say, lose sight of this fact that this is a prayer for Christians. Why? Well, this is the important point. Because the experience of forgiveness and of salvation is merely the beginning of the Christian life. And we haven't arrived when we've experienced that. That's merely the beginning. It's merely the first step. That is simply to say that you've entered into the kingdom. But that is only the very merest beginning of it all. And the tragedy is that there are so many Christian people who stop at that. They're only concerned about their personal security and safety. They're simply concerned about being in the kingdom of God at all. They simply want to know that their sins are forgiven, that they won't go to hell, and that they have a prospect of going to heaven. And the moment they've had this initial experience, they seem to rest upon it. They never grow. You never see any difference in them. If you see them 50 years later, they're exactly where they were. They think they've got everything. And there has been no indication whatsoever of any development. But you see, that is very far removed indeed from what we find here about the Christian. There are great and glorious possibilities for the Christian. Here is one of them immediately, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That they may come to know something about God's love in its breadth and length and depth and height. Indeed, that they might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now that's possible for the Christian. And uh, let me underline this. It is possible for all Christians. The apostle isn't here writing a circular letter to apostles. He isn't concerned here only with some very exceptional persons. He is writing to the ordinary church members of the church at Ephesus. We don't know their names. We know nothing at all about them. These are people whom we describe, if there is such a term, as ordinary Christians. Yet it is for these he's praying. And he prays that they may know all these things, leading to that tremendous, almost incredible climax, that he may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, now then, 
This is not only a possibility for all Christians. It is the duty of all Christians to be in this position. Now let me tell you something, give you a word which was once uttered by the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This is how Mr. Spurgeon once put this point. He said, there is a point in grace as much above the ordinary Christian as the ordinary Christian is above the worldly. Let me repeat that, it's so important. There is a point in grace, in other words, there is a point in the Christian life, in the development of the Christian, which is as much above the ordinary Christian as the ordinary Christian is above the worldling. Now that's a very striking and a very strong way of putting it. But it's absolutely right. We all know the difference in level between the non-Christian and the Christian. The Christian is here, the non-Christian is down there. A difference of level. Yes, but Mr. Spurgeon reminds us that there is this other position in the Christian life which is as much above this ordinary Christian level as this was above that. And of course, one must accept it. If we really believe that Christ can dwell in our hearts, that we can know this love of God and of Christ in all its dimensions, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. I think we'll agree at once that that is as much above the ordinary Christian level as that level is above the non-Christian. So I ask my obvious question. Are we in this point to which Mr. Spurgeon refers? Do we conform to this description that the Apostle here gives of what is possible to the Christian? Is Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith? Have we looked into this great eternal cube of God's eternal love? Have we been staggered as we've looked at these dimensions? Do we know what is meant by being filled with all the fullness of God? The God who is able to do for us exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Now then, here is the great question. Are we there? Have we reached that level, that height? Are we dwelling there? Or are we down here on the ordinary Christian level? Very well, having answered that question, we obviously must go on to this question. If we feel we are just on this ordinary level, what I take it we all want to know is how can we get to this other level? And there is only one answer to that question, and that is the answer given by the Apostles' Prayer. We must be strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man. Now then, why does this inner man of ours need to be strengthened? There are certain obvious answers to that question. And they're very important, because if we don't realize this, we shall never realize the need of being strengthened. 
There is this fatal danger, I say, of saying, ah, I've been converted. I rest upon my oars. I just now become an active worker. I rush into activities. And you find people doing that, and as I say, after 50 years, you find them exactly where they were at the beginning. They've never realized that anything more was possible. They think they've got everything. They're Christians. They've never realized the need of the inner man being strengthened. Why does he need to be strengthened? The first answer is that because at first he's only a babe. That's the New Testament term, isn't it? I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, says Paul, but as unto carnal, as uh, unto babes in Christ. That's the scriptural teaching, that we are born, and we are born as babes. And a babe is only starting to live. He hasn't developed fully, he hasn't arrived, and he is one who needs to be strengthened. He is weak. He is ignorant. He is innocent of many things in the world that is round and about him. And he hasn't a, an immunity against the things that are liable to attack him. That is the characteristic of babyhood, isn't it, or of infancy always. That's why the child has to be protected always by the parents. Obviously, he doesn't know, he doesn't understand, he takes everybody at their face value, he takes the world as it is and he thinks it's marvelous. He doesn't know of its ugliness and the foul things that are in it. It's only as we grow we begin to understand these things. Don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that that babe is without sin or that he's innocent. I don't agree with Wordsworth's talk about this uh, kind of uh, immortality that is there and this perfection and then that the shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying this, that a child, because of his ignorance, isn't aware of the dangers and therefore needs to be protected. And that is true of the new men in Christ Jesus. Doesn't matter how old a man is when he's converted, he's a babe in Christ. He feels at first everything is solved. I'll never have another difficulty. And often the evangelists are responsible for his thinking that. They give him that impression. And here he is in his utter innocence. There's never going to be another cloud in the whole of his life. But alas, the clouds come, difficulties arise, problems come across his path, and he's bewildered, and often he falls. He may even slide back. He becomes a backslider. It's because he was a babe and because he didn't know. The babe needs to be strengthened. So you see it is that the Apostle John in his first epistle talks about little children, young men, fathers. There are these gradations in the Christian life. There is this process of growth and of development. But a second reason for the need of this strengthening is this. The devil, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren, and oh, the man who hasn't yet realized that he is confronted with this power is the merest tyro in the Christian life. Listen to this apostle saying it in the last chapter of this very epistle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's not our problem. 
The problem is not simply that we have a certain struggle against our own flesh and blood. The, the body that we are in, there are problems there. It isn't merely other men. The whole problem, he says, is the principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, the spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. And it's because of this that the inner man needs to be strengthened. Because this power is not only great in might, it is great in subtlety and great in cunning. This same apostle tells the Corinthians in the second, chap in the second epistle, chapter 12, that this enemy is so powerful that he's able to transform himself into an angel of light. He can come and quote scripture. He can reason with you. He can put up arguments and cases. And he can present you with a form of truth. And it sounds perfectly alright and perfectly Christian. But it's wrong. And he leads you astray. And you enter into snares and down you go. Now, here is a very powerful reason for the need of strengthening. With might by the Spirit in the inner men. Because the devil always makes a very special target of this inner man. And you know, I've often met people in trouble and in difficulties in their spiritual life because they hadn't realized that. They seem to think that the only sins are the sins of the flesh. They were watching against those and they'd got to a point in which they didn't trouble them at all. And thinking that that was the only line on which the devil can attack, they were not aware of the fact that he, with his great subtlety, and thus, as I say, as an angel of light, he makes his direct attack upon the inner man, and insinuates his thoughts and ideas, and his innuendos and suggestions. And they were not aware at all of this, and suddenly they find themselves... Unhappy and wretched and lost, as it were, and wondering whether they've ever been Christians at all. What's happened? Oh, it was that the devil with his subtlety had ignored the outer man altogether and had simply concentrated all his attention upon the inner man. That is why, you see, that statement in the Old Testament is so true. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. The devil... And then thirdly, another reason for the need of strengthening of the inner man is this. The very greatness of that which is offered to us and that which is possible to us. Here you see is the possibility that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. That we may know this love of God and that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I say the very greatness of the thing that is offered to us demands that we be strengthened in order to receive it, lest we might be shattered by it. Now, this is a very important point, so I'd like to put it to you in this form. It's a point that is often misunderstood, or at any rate, people don't appreciate its significance. Let me give you an example or an illustration of what I regard as a complete failure to understand this point. I'm going to read to you some words written by the saintly Bishop Handley Moodle. He puts it like this. 
And why do we need a supreme empowering just in order to receive our life and our light? He says this is odd. Hence he's saying that we need to be strengthened to receive Jesus Christ who is our life and our light. He says, does the hungry wanderer need power in order to eat the food without which he will soon sink? Does the bewildered mariner need power to welcome unto his deck the pilot who alone can steer him to the haven of his desire? No. No, he says he doesn't. The thing he says is monstrous. Now you notice his argument. Here he says is something that sounds all wrong to us. Paul prays that we may be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that we may receive Christ. But he says Christ is our strength. How do I need strength in order to take strength? It sounds monstrous. He says here's a man who's been wandering in a wilderness. Uh, does uh, he need strength uh, to eat the food, the food that is going to give him strength? Or does that mariner that is lost, as it were, on the ocean in his ship, does he need strength to receive the pilot who, coming on board, knows the way and can direct him into his haven? No, he says, the thing is impossible. So then he goes on to say that it must mean this. That because of our sinful nature that is still in us, there is a tendency within us to dread the power of Christ coming into us and to be afraid of it and to wonder what it might do to us. Now, that is a perfectly true statement, but I am rejecting it in total as an exposition of this particular verse. He says that we need to be strengthened because, left to ourselves, we are afraid to receive Christ. Now, it seems to me that there's a very definite fallacy there, and a fallacy even in terms of his own illustrations. He asks the question, does a man that has been without food for long need strength in order to take that food which is going to give him strength? He says, no. I venture to suggest with great respect that the answer may be yes. In this way, isn't it? You've often read about people during the last war, men who were torpedoed perhaps and who spent days and days on rafts or in boats upon the ocean, or men who'd been in concentration camps and had been submitted to starvation. They suddenly are given liberty. They're found by somebody. And of course, one's tendency is to put them down at a table and put a great square meal before them. Well, if you do that, you may very well kill them. If you give such a man a great meal of meat and vegetables and so on, it may very well kill him. Why? Well, because he isn't strong enough to take it. Before he is in a fit condition to take that strong meal, you've got to regain his strength. You may have to inject glucose into his veins, into his blood. You may have to give him various extracts. You may have to then come on to a very lightly boiled egg, which has got very little nutriment in it, but just something, something light. It's not too much for him. A man who's weak and exhausted, he simply cannot take food. It's a danger for him to do so. So that you see, in terms of his very argument, it seems to me, that that whole position is quite wrong and certainly misses the spiritual intent of the Apostle's prayer at this point. 
Now the thing that we are going to receive is so potent, so mighty, so strong that we need to be strengthened before we can receive it. Now let me give you another argument, another analogy. Take what the author of the epistle to the Hebrews says in the fifth chapter of his epistle. He says, Hitherto I have not fed you with strong meat. He had fed them only with milk. Why? Well, he said you were not able to take it. You were not strong enough to take it. He says strong meat is for people who are adult, who have grown and who have developed. If you give a little child this red meat, this strong meat, it will give him acute indigestion. It may cause him great sickness and illness. Again, it may be the means of killing him. You don't give strong meat to babes. You give milk to babes. Strong meat is only appropriate to those whose senses have been exercised by use, who have developed, who are strong enough to take it. Indeed, the Apostle Paul has said exactly the same unto the Corinthians in the first epistle. He says, how be it we speak wisdom amongst them that are perfect. He said, I didn't speak that wisdom to you. You were yet carnal, you were babes, and I gave you the food that was appropriate to you. But you need something to happen to you before you can receive this. You need to be strengthened. And, of course, all this is fully substantiated by what we can read in the experiences of many saints of God. I've often reminded you of that experience that came to D.L. Moody. As he was walking down Wall Street in New York City one afternoon, suddenly the Holy Ghost came upon him. He was baptized with the Holy Ghost. And you remember what he tells us. He says it was so tremendous, it was so glorious, that he really began to wonder whether he could stand it, and in the end he cried out to God to hold his hand, lest he should collapse on the street and later in his room. What was it? The transcendence of the glory. When Christ enters the heart, the glory is such, the power is such, that the very physical frame seems to collapse beneath it, and the whole man is trembling and shaking. You find the same thing in the experiences of people like Jonathan Edwards and David Brainerd. They've all testified to this. You see, when Christ comes and dwells in the heart by faith, and when we are filled with the whole fullness of God, you need to be strong to take it and to contain it. It's a kind of shattering experience. So the apostle prays that they may be strengthened with might by the Spirit. In the end, amen. Oh, there are many analogies that show this. You can find it in the world of electricity and so on. If you put some powerful electric force into a container, well, you've got to be very sure that the walls of the container are reinforced, that they can stand it. You wouldn't put that into a paper wall or into a wall made of wood. You need something really powerful because of the energy, the power that is there. That's the thing the apostle is praying for. That we be strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner men. How then does this weakness of the inner man show itself? Let me point it out to you in detail. The inner man, I say, needs to be strengthened because he's a 
obey because of that powerful enemy and because of this transcendent glory that is to come in. How does the weakness show itself? Well, like this. Take the mind first. The mind, in a spiritual sense, needs to be strengthened because we are assailed by doubts. Some of the greatest saints have told us that they have been assailed by doubts at the end of their lives. They haven't believed the doubts, but the doubts have presented themselves, and they have shaken them for a while. Doubts come. That's a trouble in the mind, and the mind needs to be strengthened against doubt. Then depression. It's a very difficult thing to define that. But uh, you may wake up in the morning and find your mind in a depressed condition. The mind that may have been working perfectly yesterday doesn't seem to be functioning today. And there's a kind of dullness and slowness and inability about it. The mind, you see, needs to be strengthened. And the same way we are troubled perhaps by evil thoughts that come and attack the mind. Where do they come from? They seem to be thrown at you. Paul talks about the fiery darts of the wicked one thrown at us and he throws them into the mind. When you wake up in the morning, they stop before you've started thinking. So the mind needs to be strengthened. Then another one. Wandering thoughts. Don't we all know about this? You can read uh, light literature or your newspaper and you have no difficulty in concentrating at all. But then you try to read the Bible and your mind goes everywhere. And you can't bring your mind back to it. You're looking at words, you're reading a verse, but your mind's over there. Wandering thoughts. A difficulty about concentration upon the truth. And then we need to be strengthened in the mind in this way. While the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is in one sense gloriously simple, there is another sense in which it is true to say that it is the profoundest truth in the world. This epistle to the Ephesians is not simple. You can't read this and run at the same time. You can't gallop through this. You can't sort of just walk through the epistle to the Ephesians. No, no, there is profound truth here. There is subtle argument. There are immensities and infinities, to quote Thomas Carlyle. And you can't take these things that are run. And people born again, Christian people, they come and read the epistle to the Ephesians. And they say, I don't know what it's talking about. What is this? The mind needs to be strengthened. You've got to apprehend truth. And we cannot apprehend truth and realize what it means and what it's telling us unless our minds are strengthened. Now I know that there are many Christians who don't know that and they don't realize that at all. And not only do they not know that, they don't want to know that. These are the Christians who say, oh, well, of course, I, I haven't got the time to read these things. I'm a simple Christian, I'm a plain man, I can give my witness and my testimony, I can do practical work. But, you know, I, I really can't, I haven't got the time, I... These things are too hard for me. I, I can't grapple with them. I, I'm not concerned about doctrine and things like that. I'm a simple man and I believe in the simple gospel. But my dear friend, you've no right to speak like that. And though you don't realize it and may say that you believe the Bible from cover to cover, that the plain truth about you is that you don't. If you are making no real effort to understand the epistle to the Ephesians or all this mighty word in this New Testament, 
I say you are guilty of sin. This was written to ordinary Christians. We are all meant to understand these things. And we have no right to contract out of it. And say, I want a simple message. A plain gospel. I can't be bothered. It means too much of an effort. And my mind is tired. And I'm busy with affairs. And my business is in trouble. And so on and so forth. I really can't do it. And I'll go somewhere else where I have some, a simple, plain message. That, I say, is to deny the scripture. The Apostle Paul prays that the minds of these Ephesians might be strengthened in order that they might realize these higher possibilities and experience them and rejoice in them and so bear their witness and their testimony to the glory of God. The intellectual lethargy of many Christians today is undoubtedly their greatest sin. They never grow in knowledge. They end where they began. They're always talking about their experiences. They've never entered into these riches. They've never gone up to this mountaintop and breathed the pure air of God's holy truth. They're content with the ordinary level. They don't believe in the other because it demands effort and intellectual effort. But in exactly the same way, the heart needs to be strengthened. Because we're attacked by fears, by our imaginations, we are subject to discouragement, we tend to indulge in evil forebodings, even when everything is going well with us, our hearts begin to say, oh, it's all right at the moment, but you never know what's coming, and immediately are depressed. You put yourself into trouble. Haven't we all experienced that? How treacherous the heart can be. It can conjure up possibilities. And we go and meet them. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this child dies? What if I lose my loved one? And so on. And we can make ourselves wretched. Nothing's happening. But we're only imagining what we'd be like if it did happen. The heart. Thus these fears and forebodings and discouragements and evil imaginations often play havoc with the Christian. And there are some Christians whose whole course is bound in shallows and in miseries because they've never realized the need of having their hearts strengthened by the Holy Spirit. And in the same way, the will needs to be strengthened. Our wills are feeble and irresolute as the result of sin and the fall. Yes, we say, there it is. I'm going to do that. And we really want to. And then at the last moment, we are afraid. We don't. We stop. There I agree with Bishop Mole 100%. This failure of the will. What if I do? What will happen? And so on. And the will is paralyzed or made irresolute. And we fail to do the thing that we know we should do. How often do we fail at the very last moment? Well, there it is. You see, the moment you begin to look into this inner man and to analyze him, you see that he's very weak, he's very feeble. He needs to be strengthened. Do you know, my friends, were it not that we've got the prayer of the apostle here, which we can offer for ourselves, we should every one of us fail and falter. How often have we all failed and faltered? in mind or in heart or in will. And if we were left to ourselves, I say, there would be no hope for us. 
and there'd be nobody to recommend the gospel. But thank God there is this way of strengthening. And the apostle puts it here so perfectly for us. So that however weak you may feel yourself at this moment, however much you may have failed, this is the way. The apostle's prayer is that he, who is he? Well, he is the father to whom he's just been referring. The father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and in earth is named. That he, it's all right. I can be reinforced by God. I can't do it. I can't put this iron into the walls of my soul to receive Christ. Do as I will, I fail. But here is strength from God. He, and then you notice the next term, may grant you. What a blessed word that is, that word grant. We are familiar with it. Ah, yes, he said, he makes me a grant. He gives me this. Free gift, you see. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to purchase it. It's a free gift of God. You simply ask for it and receive it. That he may grant you. The feeblest saint can just lift up his face when he can't stand on his feet. He just looks and says, Lord, have mercy upon me. And God will strengthen him. He will grant you. And then, you see, in order to impress it upon us, he says, he will grant you according to the riches of his glory. Forgive me for rushing through these phrases as I do. I apologize for going through this epistle so quickly. Fancy rushing a phrase like this at the end of a sermon. According to the riches of his glory. What's he talking about? What is the glory of God? Well, it's the sum, the summation of all the attributes of God. His might, his majesty, his holiness, his purity, his righteousness, his justice. God in the totality of his being, the glory of God. And it is according to the riches, the fullness of that glory. That God he is able to do what? Well, to strengthen us with might. And that's the might. According to the riches of his glory. To strengthen us with power. By his spirit. It is the special function of the Holy Spirit to do this. He is given to us. He is sent to us to do this very thing. It was the same Holy Spirit that convicted us of sin, that gave us the gift of faith, that enabled us to believe we could never have believed without him. It's he who enables us all. The natural man receiveth not. God hath given unto us of his Spirit, and by the Spirit we do believe we are spiritual men. Well, that same Spirit can do this for us also. You notice how Paul put it there in that fourth chapter of the epistle to the Philippians. In verses 6 and 7 he said, In nothing be anxious. You see, when things go wrong we tend to become anxious, don't we? Where? Well, in our hearts and in our minds. In nothing be anxious. Well, what then? What can I do? How can I get rid of anxiety? In all things with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. Because you realize who God is and what he's ready to do in the riches of his glory. 
with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And what happens? Oh, the peace of God that passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The circumstances are not changed. They remain exactly what they were. Well, what's happened? Where do you get your peace from? Oh, the Holy Spirit has strengthened your heart. He strengthened your mind so you can resist the power. And you're safe. That is the prayer that the Apostle offers. I trust I've made the doctrine clear to you. We are living in days when we are constantly talking about reinforcing things. They reinforce concrete today, don't they? Ferro-concrete. Concrete's very strong. Put some iron into it, it'll be stronger still. And as you put up your massive buildings, you need something to support and to hold the weight and all that's going to be put in. Very well, reinforced concrete. Reinforced this and that. That's the principle. If you and I are to contain the Lord Jesus Christ within us, and to be filled with all the fullness of God, we must be reinforced in the inner men by the Holy Spirit. And if we realize that these are possibilities for us and desire them, and we ask God thus, according to the riches of his glory, to reinforce us by his Spirit, he has promised to do it. And Christ will dwell in our hearts by faith. Beloved Christian people, are you as much above the level of the ordinary Christian as the ordinary Christian is above the level of the man who isn't a Christian at all? That's the wondrous Glorious possibility that is there for us everyone at this moment in Jesus Christ by the grace of God. Amen.